Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, creativity, and community. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. A little later in the hour, we'll be talking with erotic romance writer Aliyah Winters about how she manages her writing, a full-time teaching career, and being true to herself. First up, I'm going to be talking about the book Start Right Where You Are by Sam Bennett. I love this concept. I love the title. I think one of the things that people feel like when they want to get a better handle on their time, a better handle on what they're doing, is this idea, she does address it to some extent, that they need more things. In fact, one of the things is you need this book. So I like that her approach starts from the get-go, that you're fine right here, start right here. Someone once told this author that most of the people at a presentation she did wouldn't bother with her advice, and she said she thinks 80% probably won't, but 20% will try some of it and get somewhere, and she's okay with that. A great approach from the author as well. But here's a general caveat, and it is fast becoming my usual caveat with this kind of book, and I wish authors would start to be better aware of it. People with unprocessed trauma and neurodivergence versus self-help books is a real powder keg. And authors and readers without those experiences won't even register where the pitfalls are any more than a right-handed person ever thinks about their dominance and default of being right-handed. And those who are still in an unrecognized or undiagnosed state won't register it either because they're busy berating themselves for not being better at using their right hands. To continue that metaphor, only those people who have done their own work or have relationships with those who have done their work will see these places where self-help books are like sideways without curb cuts. So be advised with this book and with any self-help books and coaching for that matter that it is very easy for it to just be more of the same self-dump and you may end up with worse self-criticism instead of less. If that happens to you routinely, if this feels very familiar to you, chances are you have other issues that need to be addressed before this kind of general helpful advice kind of thing can help you. So. Bennett starts with her bona fides and a little bit of bratty self-promotion, which is another caveat. I respect that she's gotten aligned to her life in a way that benefits her, assuming that it's all true. But it's a mixed bag because as an audience who's trying to get there, it can be a little hard to read and shaming and feel kind of like snake oil, kind of greasy to be like, I have a perfect life. And if you read and do everything in this book, you'll have a perfect life. You know, no, you won't. This is advice. You'll have to take the advice every time you put an overlay of yourself on something someone else tells you. Results may vary. So her big emphasis is small changes, like a lot of other books I've read, some good, some bad. But her list has some very interesting diversions. She insists that you have to get the cell phone out of the bedroom. She suggests that you feel the supportive energy of living and life around you. I think that's kind of nice. She suggests something I've never seen suggested before, which is grown-up naked body time. Just to enjoy and to be one with your body. 
She says feeling overwhelmed is a choice. This is her list, by the way, at the beginning, not mine. Feeling overwhelmed is a choice. That is 100% wrong. She suggests you turn complaints into requests and talks a little bit about our own influence and our own agency. I think the thing about complaining that's interesting to me is if you are complaining about something, again, more than once or twice, that is an inner voice telling you to address this problem. And we ignore that inner voice at our own peril, and we routinely ignore it. Complaining feels like you're doing something. Complaining has a certain dopamine hit to it. But you're not. You're giving up your own agency and it's unnecessary, and you're ignoring, if you continue to complain and not take actual steps to find out what's going wrong and how to change it, then you're just listening to, yet you're sort of vocalizing an inner voice that's trying to tell you something, and you're ignoring it, and it's not doing you any good, and listening to that voice will continue to bring you down. Release what no longer suits you, stuff, but honestly, release people. Two, stop having imaginary conversations with other people. This resonates very highly with me. It's part of perseverating, which is when something happens and you just revisit it and revisit it and revisit it. But it's also, and I thought this was an interesting observation by Bennett, it has a lot to do with perfectionism, with the idea that if you had just said something differently, approached the conversation differently, if if things had gone a little bit differently, you could have fixed it. That is something I don't think I've ever seen articulated like this, and I thought it was great. And then she's got this lovely piece about it, which of course would be right up my alley, which is do art about it. Do five arts about it. Do it badly, throw it out, make it disposable, something you can laugh at. The kind of art doesn't matter. When you have a period of feeling stuck in your life or a period of not being fully aligned, This is kind of an interesting way to sort of tap into your inner voice. Go do art about it. Part of that is art being a thing that you express, not art as in a skill or an employment. And I'm always reminded, I just got reminded about this when I saw a bunch of kids' drawings up at a local grocery store. They had a little gallery, and I thought, that's so lovely. And most of the kids' stuff looked like exactly what it was, which was third grade art at third grade art level. And then one kid was like a Da Vinci. And I thought, oh, that's Chris Thayer, because Chris Thayer was in my elementary school class. And after a very short time for all of us as his classmates, we pretty much stopped drawing because he was incredibly gifted as an artist. We weren't being taught how to do any of the skills, and he just had it. So you'd look at your little potato person, and you'd look at his three-quarter profile, and you'd say, nope. But unfortunately, by letting that kind of go by, and by teachers praising him all the time, it led to, you know, 25, 24 kids being kind of depressed about ever expressing themselves through art. And one kid who that is his only big skill that he gets shown off about all the time. So rediscover. If you're not comfortable doing it, rediscover 
your inner artist and start letting them loose and let them be bad. She goes on to talk about doing one thing a day. I suggest one thing a week. That works better for me. That wishing for things to be different is the same as things standing still. I do like this better than the micro habit book. There are shades of give yourself an A from the art of possibility, a book that I loved and I reviewed in an earlier podcast. The idea being you're already where you are and that is enough right now. So if you didn't have to prove yourself, what could you do with yourself now? Believe as if the thing has already happened. That's not original with Bennett, but it's always a helpful approach. She mentions her website about 500 too many times in this book, but she's got other stuff on it. I didn't even bother checking because I got so sick of her referencing it. So be aware of that. And then she has a beautiful quote from Neil deGrasse Tyson. We are all connected to each other biologically, to the earth chemically, to the universe atomically. And that's that whole piece of the what she calls the net, but the net of life and living. Breathe. Fine. Nothing more important than your own well-being. And I always think about a bike helmet. I always see adults with kids and the adults are not wearing a bike helmet. And I think if something happens to your kid, first of all, you don't ever want anything to happen to your kid. You'd feel terrible. But there is someone there who can handle the emergency if something does. If something happens to you, now you're hoping that a seven or eight-year-old will have the presence of mind and the skills to figure out how to scrape you off the road. And I have had bad bike experiences, and I would not wish a child to have to handle it. Wear your bike helmet. Put your own oxygen mask on in the plane. Your well-being is more important than your bank account. It's more important than your desire to be liked or approved of. And she suggests you start from a place of self-sacrifice if that's where you are, but you're aiming for a place of self-nourishing. I get her phone in the bedroom thing, but I use a sleep app and I find her kind of judgy. She's not wrong. There's plenty of science that says it's really bad to sleep with a phone. I haven't figured out a real way around it yet. She suggests you start in the morning and organize yourself creatively, strategically, planning, relationship, admin. Those are all fine. There's nothing wrong with any of those if it works for you. I did see a TikTok recently where the woman said that what she does is she finds three things that will really feel good today. And she puts those on her list for the day first. And then she puts three things to try to get around to. But she really prioritizes the three things that will be great. And I thought that was a really interesting way because I do what everybody else does. All the things I have to do and I check them off. And then if they're not checked off, they have to sit there for another day. It's not a happy process. And if you do an unhappy process long enough, you tend to stop doing it well. Communicate promptly, but not immediately. This is so big. We teach other people how to treat us. If we teach them that we are completely on call at all times, that we are at their beck and call, then how can we fault them for feeling like we are supposed to be at their beck and call? Teach people that you have times when you simply are not available. And don't be immediate. Be reliable, but not instantly attainable. 
write everything down in the calendar. I like that. I actually think, though, I always approach my calendars and my lists of ideas from a data structure point of view. And data structure is organized by what questions will you ask? So questions involve, what am I doing today? When do I have to leave the house? So she does talk about building in buffer time, which I think is brilliant and I rarely see in this kind of book. And one that actually really does address neurodivergence is to be able to break down things and say, well, I will need a parking space. It's always hard to find a place. Well, I will. So fine, put that in the calendar. Too many ideas. I use Evernote. There's other things to use. Anything where you can search it. And then another thing to remember where there's too many ideas, the act of writing down things is self-comforting. One thing I discovered when my kids were really quite young was that they didn't really want everything on their Christmas lists. They wanted their wants to be heard. So you write it down, you keep a list. It's self-comforting. You've been heard, but do it in such a way that you can find it again. Half done is fine. You have my permission. You have the author's permission. You need to learn to have your own permission to learn something to a point and abandon it and never worry about that thing again. Did you finish making that sweater when you learned how to knit? No, it shouldn't haunt you. It's done. You learned what you needed to learn. And unless you really feel desperate that you want to finish it, in which case you can use some of the things in this book to do that, then walk away. It's fine to learn. She talks a bit about the barriers to starting. If I lose weight, oh, I need a degree before I can. Oh, the kids need to be older. But I don't think she goes all the way with it because I have been studying a therapy modality this year called IFS, Internal Family Systems. I would prefer that it was called Internal Attachment Systems, but that's just me. When you hear that voice telling you you can't start the thing, when you hear that barrier, oh, I need to lose weight first. Oh, the kids need to be older. That is a protective voice. That's a protective part. It is answering your idea with something that will stop you from being hurt like you have been hurt in the past. Maybe the recent past, most likely the very distant past. If this is a thing that stops you from really blossoming, stops you from pursuing an idea and getting joy out of it, then you owe it to yourself to find a therapist and to ask them about what's called parts work or IFS and find out what inner voice is being protected from harm to the extent that as an adult, you're finding it hard to get stuff done. One really great exercise she has is she does it as, are you under challenged? I don't think that's the only place to use this, but you can get someone to help you and you try recording yourself, whatever. Talk about your current projects. And my addition to this is ask questions about your thoughts on your current projects. Do you sound engaged and excited? And then the thing I would add to this is 
look at your word sequence and find out if it tells you anything. If you state something like, should I just quit learning how to play guitar? Look at it. Look at the way the syntax. You said, quit playing guitar. Something in your mind is saying, this isn't the right time for it. So you need to find out whether that is truly how you feel or whether it's a protective voice. But understand that the way you phrase a question really tells a lot about how your brain is thinking about the answer right now. If your brain was saying that this is a great time to continue playing the guitar, you would say, should I keep going with the guitar? Should I find a teacher to get me to the next level with the guitar? That's how you would phrase the question. So the syntax often just, it's not perfect, but it often is a clue to how you really feel about this thing at this time. And I want to talk about something that she does not do. She talks about having, uh, acknowledging your story has changed, making a date with your other goals, getting a therapist, all these other good things, learning how to say no. But I want to talk about something called the rising three or that I call the rising three. And it goes like this. If you are a person with a lot of ideas, certainly this very much is the case with people with ADHD. You will find that when you make a decision, and, and this book has a lot about decision-making, you often get paralyzed we often get paralyzed because the decision we made for something was equally a decision against something. I'll use guitar lessons as a perfect example. You wanted to do it. You did it. You're not feeling it right now. And as you say to yourself, I guess I won't do it, there's a big pushback from a lot of your internal voices about the money you spent, sunk cost fallacy, all these other things. Now, maybe it is a thing that you can do okay, not do great at, and abandon because you've learned what you wanted to learn. But more commonly, it's more nuanced than that. You are allowed to keep a long, long list. Again, please keep it somewhere where you can search. You're allowed to keep a long, long list. But the number of things that you can really reasonably expect to pursue at any given time is about three to five. So keep guitar on the list. Guitar simply sinks down the list by some numbers. And something that's exciting you, something that's oncoming, something that is on the horizon rises to that top three to five. But you have not given up guitar, you've deprioritized it for now. A lot of times, even just telling yourself that will self-soothe a lot of the voices, a lot of the voices from that are internalized from our parents, from our teachers, from our siblings saying, oh, you're just quitting again, or you only just got good. Any of that stuff that wants you to do a sunk cost fallacy, any of that stuff that's less about your insecurities, but all about theirs, those can be allowed to rest while this isn't a great time for guitar, but it will come back if you're interested in it. That allows you to trust your own instincts for the things you want to do. She uses a heuristic halt, H-A-L-T-T. -T. I've heard this before, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, thirsty. 
I'm not a big fan of this. I don't think angry and lonely belong there because those are not basic physical needs. It's fine to become aware whether you're angry and lonely, although what that's going to do for you at this moment, I don't know. I, I, and I know the Maslow Triangle's got some issues or maybe it's maybe the big issue is that he got it from some from other cultures and then took credit for it. But anyway, the Maslow hierarchy of needs starts with your physical needs. Hungry, tired, thirsty. Those are the big three. If you are having trouble with procrastination, if you're struggling, if you feel there are barriers, those are the first three questions. If you're fighting with yourself, if you're fighting with others, those are the big three questions. Are we hungry? Are we tired? Are we thirsty? Angry, lonely, I feel like... Take that up with your journal? Anyway, urgency trap. Whenever you feel like you've been caught in doing too many urgent things, which is definitely an overwhelm, why are you doing this urgent thing? You have to be able to tell yourself because, because blank. And the follow-up question immediately afterward, why does it have to be your task? Because. Delegate, hire people smarter than you. Calculate your de delegation. If you're stuck in a scarcity mindset, you can only see money going out to delegation. But there's another more powerful side to delegation, and it is the money you will make or the money you will save if you delegate this thing that is hard for you that you hate. Always something to keep in mind when you are struggling. She has good practical advice for cultivating intuition, although if you haven't integrated the voices in your head, the parts inside you, you won't trust your intuition. But she has things like different kinds of writing, and there's a great one, which is just for an exercise, order the first thing on a menu that appeals to you. Stop reading the menu and just order that first thing. I always think of Chidi Adagonye from the show The Good Place, and the reason that he is not in The Good Place is because of how paralyzing he found it to make even the simplest decision. A lot of us spent a lot of time other people making decisions for us or being punished for our own decisions or just finding that the easiest way to get along is to get along. And we may well need practice on decisions, but also look at that intuition. Find out whether things are impeding that intuition, like a need to be right or fearful responses or back to Maslow, fatigue and dehydration or depression. When these things happen, walk, draw, do music, do art. Bennett suggests some weighted pros and cons, which is fine. And then she gets into that grown-up naked time. It's only one chapter. It's pretty great, though. Sex, massage, skincare, bath, anything that lets you just acknowledge your entire body, it's yours. You can be mindful of it. It's a gift of yours. Get naked and take a nap. This is great. Books like this never really integrate the body. She goes on to do all sorts of things. Declutter. I suggest you declutter people too. She tells you to quit complaining right now. I have a problem with that. I think that's, I think she's kind of a, a don't person and quite frankly, don't people should stop doing that. <laughs> Because complaining is often the only release we have in a terrible situation. 
And every time you hear yourself complain, you feel a little relieved, especially if complaining is a way that you connect with others, which often is the case. At work, for example, people will often connect through their complaining, but it doesn't make the situation any better. So notice that you're complaining and take a deep dive look at why. She does a thing about apologizing. Don't apologize. I agree. Don't ever apologize about anything you don't have control over. If you have control over that thing and you screwed up, then do apologize, but do the three-part apology. I've talked about that in other episodes. Perseverating again. She's with the do's and don'ts. That's when you sort of go round and round and round the same conversation again and again. So another caveat about this book, there's a lot to like in it. She does seven times where she does prayers. I found that so distracting. In fact, I found it so distracting. I thought, look, lady, why don't you just do two editions? Do a Christian edition. And it wasn't really a Christian prayer, but still, I just didn't need to feel like I was reading her journal. I found it made me drop right out of like the thing I was thinking about. So I did something I have only done one other time in my life, and I ripped out those seven pages. And now I have a much better book with one slightly thinner. The advice, while it often doesn't acknowledge the struggles of people who really struggle with this stuff, is still in the main sound. The basic premise of starting right where you are right now is super attractive, although she doesn't do as much on that as I would have liked. I read this kind of book all the time, and I gather useful stuff, and I do a vibe check. This one, ignoring the 2,000 times she mentions her own website and taking out the God bits, is a decent reference book to actually go back to for specific points of friction within yourself. And then do the journaling exercises then. If after a year and a half of pandemic, you're kind of flopping around for clarity about your life direction, this book, Start Right Where You Are by Sam Bennett, is a decent start. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, community, and creativity. With me today is Elia Winters. She's an award-winning erotic romance novelist. She won the 2019 Rita Award. She won the Bisexual Book Awards in 2020. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. So what we do is we talk about balancing work, community, creativity in any of those orders. And one of the things, well, first of all, I'm always really impressed with novelists and writers because it just feels like a thing everyone's always wanted to do, but also the ability to kind of build that into your time if it's not the only thing you do. So can you tell me a little bit about how you got into writing? Sure. I have always written. I've always enjoyed writing. I've been a long form writer since high school. I'm not really a short story writer. So I wrote, just started writing novels, very terrible novels back when I was in high school. And, you know, the more you write, the better you get. And so I wrote across various genres. And in college, in my senior year of college, I discovered National Novel Writing Month. 
thanks to a friend of mine, which is held every November. And it's an informal writing challenge where you write 50,000 words in 30 days. Ooh. And this Ooh. was this was back in November of 2001, which was really the first year the program went national. The first two years, it was the creator and his friends. Hmm. And then in 2001, it went national. And I was part of that first group. Oh, wow. And it's evolved quite a bit since then. So I decided to take on this challenge. And at the same time, I was also writing a novel for my capstone project as a senior in college. So that was probably my first experience with really intense writing deadlines. But I continued doing NaNoWriMo, as it's called, every year (laughs) since then, and writing really frequently and just enjoying the process and querying novels to very limited success, first to publishers, and then as I learned more, to agents. And on my um, 10-year anniversary of NaNoWriMo, so this was back in 2010, I wrote a novel that I decided was just going to be an indulgence just for me that was an erotic romance. Hmm. And when I finished it, I knew I had something that was marketable. And I queried the person who became my agent and she offered me representation. Wow. So I've been, yeah. So after years of unsuccessful querying, when I hit that book, I just queried one person, the one person I wanted to represent me. And I feel very fortunate in that. And so she's been my agent ever since, the amazing Sarita Hernandez. Wow. So actually a bunch of things jumped out at me, but the thing that jumped out at me biggest was the combination of you decided to write something just for you and that that's what ended up being marketable yes and then you also found the right person right away how was that light bulb moment it just feels so ironic right (laughs) the time you say not this one it's actually is this one i yeah what made you sort of suddenly decide forget it i'm gonna just write for myself now well i had written like little sexy shorts back when i was younger like not young, young, but, you know, back in high school, passing them around and, and in college. And it wasn't necessarily a genre I had considered writing. I used to sneak my mother's romance novels now and then, but I was mostly writing fantasy and I was writing um, some science fiction and I read everything. Mm. But I think there's, there's something in the fun of, you know, writing sex, writing relationships that I really enjoyed. And writing without an audience just with the things that I enjoyed combined with the fact that I've written so much that it was at the time my latest book right so I do think that I've continued to improve but at that point I had written enough books that I felt that the one I was querying which was a previous book was almost there but not quite Mm. and when I wrote this I felt like I had understood a lot more about the rhythms of pacing Mm. and characterization. And I recognized that I had grown stronger as a writer and that this piece was going to, um, that this, it seems like the best thing I'd written. So I was able to assess that. And I got feedback from a friend of mine who is also a, um, she's a teacher and she's an avid reader and does some writing herself. So she read it and said, oh, no, this you, you've got to query this. Mm. So that helped me. But I also had to decide, like, 
if this was the genre I was going to lean into because I'd written so many other things. And I thought I'll at least like, like I enjoy it and maybe I'll start here and then branch into other genres. And I've actually found that the more I've settled into the genre, the more I've loved how it's consistent with my feminism, my sex positivity, and it's become this really interesting avenue and outlet for a lot of uh, political and personal topics that I'm really passionate about. Whoa, that's really interesting. That is not... Romance has a long and dismissed history, basically, <laughs> right? As sort of junk novels. Yeah. So, and, and certainly erotic romance has, you know, a uh, sort of covert brown wrapper kind of aspect to it. So yes. the idea that you can find your way to really sort of serious big topics through that, that's neat. Can you talk a little more about that? Sure. Um, I think that there's a, uh, there's a, a common misconception that some writing is political and other writing is not. And I would hazard that all writing, including genre writing, everything is political, everything we produce. And the only way it seems political is if it's challenging the status quo and that the decision to reinforce existing beliefs and paradigms is also a political decision. Mm. Just people who think they keep politics out of their writing tend to be people who are reinforcing just the politics that are seen as invisible or mm. default as opposed to a choice. I love that. Yeah. So I think that when people think about romance, I think they have a vision of it that's really frozen 40 years in the past. And people picture like how many times is Fabio mentioned in an article about romance novels <laughs> when Fabio hasn't done romance novel cover work in, you know, at least 30 years. Yeah. And we don't do that with other genres right. as much. And a lot of it is because romance is predominantly a genre read and written by women. Mm -hmm. And I think the misogyny inherent in that is hard to fight against. I think YA has experienced many of the same issues, except that as YA has become popular for movies and adaptations, especially YA dystopia, then it's become a little bit more critically accepted. Right. And romance is getting its day, but most of the articles written about romance nowadays are written by people who don't read romance, right. but thus think they know it. Right. One of the things you said before about writing it for yourself that I thought was interesting is a lot of the writing advice and just a lot of sort of creation advice for people is not to just do it for the audience of one, but like figure out who your audience is, who would like... But it sounds to me like, in fact, you really were kind of off the chain by allowing yourself to write a book that you wanted, that you want, just you. I think there's a, I think there's a line, um, and I think it's a difficult one to walk. I think that it is important to write what you want to read because you are going to have to read it pretty much more than anyone else. <laughs> you have to read this book so many times. And at the end, I always go through a stage at the end where I'm like, is any of this enjoyable? <laughs> Does anyone like this? Um, so you're going to have to read it a lot. So write what you like. And then my audience becomes other people who think these things are cool and who like what I like. And so then there's also the matter, though, of reaching that audience. Right. So how does your book get in front of the right 
eyes of people who are going to appreciate it. Related to that is that you can write what you like, but if you want to sell, you also need to be familiar with genre conventions Mm. in order to market effectively. There's often people in romance groups saying, well, what if they don't end up together? It's like, yeah, that's fine, but that's not a romance. Mm. Like your, your characters have to end up together. That's a genre convention. Nicholas Sparks is not a romance author. He writes love stories. You can write love stories, fiction with strong romantic elements, but you need to figure out what genre you're writing. And if you're writing across multiple genres or a mashup, then you have to be really familiar with those genres. Otherwise, your readership is not going to find you or they're not going to get what they're looking for in your books. So I think there's that balance of knowing what your audience wants and also writing the things that you enjoy. So that's so interesting. How do you even find like how to explicitly figure out what those what those components are, those conventions? I think reading a lot in the genre is important and reading a variety of authors and reading modern, reading modern takes in the genre. Um, Sometimes people who like want to read romance or also sci-fi You know, if you're reading exclusively pieces from the 80s, that's not what folks are looking for anymore. Mm. And so reading a lot in the genre and talking to other authors, being in connections in networks with them. One of the biggest adjustments I had to make when I started publishing is realizing that other authors are not my competition. No one reads for their whole life. And many people go into the genre thinking I'm competing with all these other books. No, no, you're definitely not. Writers are readers. And so we read each other's books, we promote each other's books. And this is where your network comes from. It's how you understand what people are discussing and debating in the genre Mm. and how they feel about it is making those professional networks and connections. Wow. Uh, Yeah. That whole bit about competition, that's, that's a really important piece, I feel like, that they're not. I think so. You're not essentially a, well, actually I just thought about it and then I thought about its opposite almost immediately. I was going to say, it's not like you're a product and this is your competition, but I actually have felt more and more and more over the years that the best products of any kind do really well if they're not actually in competition with their competition, if they're in cooperation with their competition. I used to work at Eddie Bauer and we were told if someone couldn't find something in our catalog, we had a stack of L.L. Bean and they were like, we don't fight. Give them the pants, give them from L.L. Bean. And we would because they'd always call us afterwards. They were like, you guys were so nice. You sent me to a competitor. So that whole marketing piece of it is just uh, kind of evaporates. So and on that question, were you tempted to self-publish? At the time when I was starting, okay, so so I am actually, I'm a hybrid author. So I have several books. I have 10 books out. Eight of them are traditionally published and two of them are self-published. And one of them, one of the self-published books was traditionally published by a small boutique press, which went out of business and I got the rights back to and mm. I republished I self-published it this year. So when I was first starting in my search for publishers, self-publishing was very new. Mm. And it also, there were a lot of misconceptions about self-publishing. I think there still are. So 
at the time, I was very concerned with the external validation of having an agent Mm. and of having publishers be willing to financially invest in me and my work Mm. and understanding that 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 felt like making it to me. Right, right, right. Yeah. Now, 11 years down the road, I feel differently. And part of it is that I've been blessed to have this endorsement from a number of publishing houses and my agent. But now that I know what I know about publishing, I love being hybrid. And I think there's a lot of value in self-publishing. I'm part of a couple of Facebook groups. One of them is called 20 Books to 50K. And it is entirely focused on self-publishing marketing, not craft, but how do you become a successful self-published author? And the people in that group are making living wages and above by being very smart about their writing diligence, their understanding of viable product for market, their ability to turn out books that are still like really good and becoming skilled at that and marketing to the right audiences. Mm. So self-publishing is not the animal it used to be. And I think that that benefits everybody, putting more books out there and asking authors to to learn their industry in a way that I think authors didn't really have to before the internet. Right, right. Yeah, they were gatekept more, but then stuff was, was almost like a studio star system a little bit. Yeah. And there's there's also the the other leg of it, too, is that publishers have historically underrepresented and underpublished books by people of color, especially black women in romance. And that self-publishing has given platform to a lot of people who were gatekept out of publishing for reasons that are not about craft or skill butter about the prevailing conditions of white supremacy and the way that publishing has always been uh, like an old boys club in many ways. And I think it's evolving, but the books that are being published traditionally now have been self-published for years, these types of books. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Sort of for the, for the groups. Yeah. Right. So you have to, I'm trying to think, the time component for you, you have to, you have these hybrid avenues, so you're doing a fair amount of self-promotion on the one side, and then the book publisher's doing it for some of your other books, but you also mm-hmm. have to be writing and find the creative time to do that, and also editing, which, you know, to me is like the Himalayas, and... I know you have a teaching job too. How how on earth do you parse out your time? Well, I, I I often say that I work hard to be a judicious steward of my time. And I do. I I also think that I'm becoming more aware of the seasons of things, that the different things that I fill my life with have seasons of busyness. So there's parts of the year as a teacher where I'm going to be just full out and that needs to be my top focus. When I'm under book contract, 
there are periods of time where that has to be my top focus. And when I'm doing like extracurriculars or other activities, like, like everything has its season. Mm. And one of my biggest goals is to not have those seasons happen at the same time. <laughs> so, and sometimes it's just unavoidable. I am someone who chose not to have children. And that gives me free time that people who are also parenting mm. do not have. It's not a better or worse choice. It's just a different choice. And so that it, it does give me different free time. I do know people who are parenting and writing and working full time. And it, it's intense. Right. So it's interesting to be doing this, uh, to be having this conversation now, because for the last four months or so, basically since the since the start of 2021, I decided I was I was taking a few months off from writing. Mm. And part of that is that I've got a couple other really big projects happening in my life. And I'm dealing with the challenges of teaching in a pandemic. Right. And so I've been, I don't have anything under contract right now, but I do have a, a trilogy that I'm, I'd like to draft. And so I'll, I'll draft part of it and then I'll put together a proposal that my agent shops around mm. and I held off doing that because after some attempts at it toward the end of last year, it just felt like a little too much to manage right now. Mm. So when the summer rolls around, I'm hoping to start writing again, but I consciously chose, had the ability to choose not to do this one thing right now mm. because it was affecting my mental health. So I think when you have the ability to step away from something to give yourself permission to do that, as opposed to just not doing it and then feeling bad every day that you didn't do it. Right. To make the conscious choice to not do something is really freeing. So I'm trying to get better about choosing not to do things. Right. And that that's good. I think this is a this is a hard time right now. We're all just hanging on. You said to step away from writing. Do you still write? For like anyway, just because of the disciplinary aspect, or do you are you like look? Just take the, you know, I was going to use a very old phrase, take the needle off that record for the time being, but just sort of stop it and then come back to it. No, the needle's off the record. Um, I've done a few things like I've, I, I do product reviews on my website. So I've done like some blog posts and I am always active on social media as Elia Winters. Um, so I'm, I'm always out there like, you know, posting things and trying to stay active. But I haven't written anything since this past um, NaNoWriMo mm. and for, for, the, for the novel. So I think I know what's, what's coming next. But I, I'm pretty confident in my, in my discipline and know that I can come back to it. Right. There were two years where I did... Um, the first year I decided to average a hundred words a day or sorry, an average a thousand words a day for mm. the year, Wow! which I did. And then the second year I did that for a second year and decided to average a thousand words a day, but also have no day with fewer than a hundred words. Okay. And so I did that. So I wrote every day for a year and wrote, you know, 400,000 words, two years in a row. And then I stopped. Right. <laughs> doing that because um i i could do it i figured out i could do it and realized that what i was producing for me isn't inherently better than when i just write in the seasons that appeal to me interesting okay 
When you were doing that, were you always writing? Uh, this is one of the questions I always have with these challenges. Were you, were you writing on the same project when you were doing that? No, no, many different projects. So I decided that anything that I was writing for my author career or for my personal journaling was going to count. So mm. sometimes it was journaling, but usually it was, so I counted all my novels, but also blog posts, articles for newsletters, guest posts on other people's blogs. I counted all of that. Mm. And so it was like, you know, three or four different novels. Some, I'm trying to put together a collection of shorts. So that all was included. But anything I was writing like, for Dungeons and Dragons or for like my <laughs> teaching life, like none of that. I didn't count any of that. Mm, got it. When you have to get into that place to write, do you need to have like time, like open time to do it? Or is it something you can do, you know, in the hours between? I tend to not write for more than two hours at a go. I am not. While I am like pretty prolific, I'm not nearly at the level of people who write thousands of words a day reliably and the people who are self-publishing on a much faster schedule. I'm not like a speed demon when it comes to words. Mm -hmm. I can write properly motivated in a word sprint. I can write a thousand words in 20 minutes, but usually a thousand words is like an hour for me. And um, I can usually write about 2000 words in about two hours or less. Mm. I seldom write longer than that unless I'm under a deadline. If I haven't been in a project for a while, it's nice to take a few hours just to ramble around in it, to get back into it, do some free writing, just play around in a manuscript. If I've been writing regularly, I can sometimes take just 15 minutes mm. and pound out a few hundred words on a project. And I try to always have a sense of what's next. I used to be a, a pantser, as the expression goes, where you write by the seat of your pants. Yeah. And I'm much more of a plotter now. Now, now I've, I outline my books and write scene descriptions and do all of that before time, before I start, which oh, helps wow. me in the process. That's yeah. That's more dramatic. That's more like dramaturgy. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think that's interesting. I haven't thought about that connection before. Yeah, I would imagine so. Hmm. I don't think it's inherently better. I think that's one of the one of the funny things about creative pursuits is everyone wants to ascribe a formula to it based on what they find effective. Yeah. And there just isn't. So some people are just pantsers through and through mm -hmm. and they just sit down with a vague notion of an opening line and just dive in. And some people like script everything beforehand. And I've uh, found myself evolving more toward outlining mm. as I, but I also don't really know, like this, this trilogy that I'm starting, I wrote two versions of the first half of this book last November, and neither of them works, but I now know what it needs to be. Ah. So like I had all my plan and then I started writing and I was like, this isn't quite right. And I started over and I'm like, this isn't quite right. So you still have to discover as you go, I think. How hard is it to do exactly that process? Like that's one of the things that when I hear it feels like it fills me with despair, like this whole like <laughs> drown your kittens kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I, it, it affects me less than it used to. Mm. I think 
over the years, I've learned what my process is. And my process is usually that I don't fully understand characters until I've written them through to the end of a book. Mm. So even if I lay out what I think should be happening and what their arcs are, until I make little tiny decisions in the moment to have little lines of dialogue, those create overall a shape of the characters that I can't foresee until I'm writing. What this does mean is that I throw away a lot of words. And learning that that's my process has helped me embrace that as a process versus thinking that all words like like no words are wasted there's this great quote and i i don't have it but a friend a writer friend shared it with me that described writing like like bakers with the the yeast in the air like all baking <laughs> ah. builds future baking because of the like just the air of what bread brings into a room and their writing is the same way that all the words you write like they, they all have, have use, even if they don't go in a project. Right. So that's comforting. The book that I wrote that won the, uh, the 2019 Rita Awards, it's the first of a trilogy and it's called Freeway Split. And I wrote about 300,000 words to get to the 75,000 that are in that book. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was brutal. That book took me, I think, two and a half years. And it was the hardest thing I'd ever written. It was more complex. It went through a lot of drafts, clearly. And at the end, my agent said, well, when I told her my word count, she's like, oh, well, don't feel bad about it taking you this long. You wrote five books to get this one. And I did. It was brutal. But I wouldn't have gotten to that book if it weren't for all those other words. Yeah. Yeah. And, And so, and your agent gave you that feedback. Do you have an editor as well? I do. I have a variety of editors. So the, when a book gets picked up by a publishing house, they will assign me an editor, a couple of editors. I will have a developmental editor who works with me on like story ideas and such. And then um, usually will also do line edits with me for, you know, when I repeat the same word 30 oh, yeah. page and don't realize it. And then it'll go to someone else for copy editing and proofreading within the agency. Mm. For my self-published books, I hire out for an editor. So I've worked with um, with a few different editors, including yeah, several of the editors I've worked with are freelancers who I first worked with as part of publishing houses ah, nice. and then hired independently. I see. Yeah. yeah so that, that's great. Tara Cascaden has done... Um, she worked with me on the whole the whole comes in threes trilogy which was the three-way split books and was fantastic i worked with her at a publishing house and then when i self-published the third book in that trilogy she was working independently and i i hired her to work with me for that so it's great when you have a relationship with an editor and they understand your style and can push you in the ways you need to be pushed right right so wait so a publishing company picked up two of a trilogy well, they had originally contracted for the entire trilogy, but it was on proposal. Mm. So the first book existed, or at least the first half of the first book. And so I was contracted to write the others. And they had a shift in editorial teams and in the, the company wanted to go in a somewhat different direction. So 
they had me make some changes to book two different than what I had originally proposed. Ah. And that was all right. It ended up being a little different book than I had envisioned, but it was still a book I really liked. But when we got to the third book, we just weren't able to come to an agreement on what we wanted that third book to look like. They wanted some pretty significant changes to what the original contract had requested. Mm. And so after some conversations with my agent, I decided that it would probably be best if we part ways and it was amicable. Mm. And so we we did. We parted ways and I self-published the third book. Oh, that's interesting. Because that feels like sort of uh, making a lemonade out of a pile of lemons. Like it's kind of, yeah, it's a nice outcome for something that would might feel like, well, that's it. Got to abandon that halfway through. Yeah, it was it was difficult. And it took me it, it's hard to figure out what what you're being stubborn about. And when it's a really good recommendation, and what is just different than your brand. Mm. So what they were recommending would have made a perfectly good book. It's just not my brand of writing. Mm. It's a different type of story than I write. And now I'm I'm blessed enough to be far enough in my writing career to recognize that and to have someone going the bat with me to say like, hey, I just don't think this is a good fit anymore. And for us to reach that place together felt like it was the best possible outcome for that relationship. Well, it's also a very graceful end to something that could have gotten swept up in the sunk cost fallacy where you feel like well, I've put oh, in yeah. so much and they just want this kind of change. I guess I'll just bite the bullet and do it. It's graceful and, and pretty brave, I think, to turn around and say, no, 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 this is going to get done the way I want to do it. Thank you. I, I, I'm pretty pleased with how it all turned out, but it was, it was scary. It was my first foray into self-publishing, mm. but I feel like it was, um, it was a good move and I'm very pleased with, uh, with the way it turned out. Mm. That's pretty neat. I'd like to thank Elia Winters for talking with me today. Join us next week for the second half of our conversation. You can find links to her work and social media, as well as past episodes at workingnine2thrive.com.